Many have lately criticized the quote-unquote cancel culture of the political left, the campus activists or Twitter mobs who mobilize to fire or deplatform controversial professors or speakers or other cultural figures. And these critics are often right that there is something fundamentally wrong with this culture on the left. But some of the critics, like John McWhorter and Barry Weiss, Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lukianoff, suggest that the basic problem is branding, is the tendency to brand our intellectual opponents as evil. Is that the basic problem? Are they right about this? This disagreement doesn't always warrant condemnation, but does it ever? Well, welcome to New Ideal. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to answer that question. We're going to discuss the topic. Not everyone who's mistaken is evil, but some are. My name is Ben Baer. I am a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is ARI Senior Fellow, Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. Thanks for being here. Hi, Ben. Good to be here. So I thought we should get things started first just by talking about what the real problem with what critics call cancel culture uh, actually is. And I think in part what they're actually reacting to here. And it would be useful to work with a concrete example of it. And this is this is an example I draw from the Lukianoff and Hate book, The Coddling of the American Mind which I think to begin with illustrates one of the major problems, which is that on the campus activist, uh, in the campus activist culture, you, you see a real uh, trend toward in the increasing irrationality and dogmatism uh, uh, in these campaigns to deplatform and fire. Uh, you see a really hair trigger tendency to jump to conclusions about the worst possible explanation, worst possible motive uh, of someone they want to criticize. And so, for example, there's a, there's a story uh, from Claremont McKenna University where a student who happens to be uh, Latino writes to university administrators saying that they feel underrepresented, that the, uh, the staff and the faculty do not uh, have enough people of color. Uh, she wonders if she was maybe admitted just to fulfill a quota. The Dean of Students replies to her message very sympathetically, uh, offering to have a conversation because she wants to better help uh, serve students like this, this young lady who's writing this letter. Uh, and the way she happens to characterize the student in this case is we want to better serve students like her who don't quote unquote fit the mold. The student gets really offended by the use of the phrase fit the mold. And rather than taking the dean up on the offer to have a conversation, circulates the letter on social media. This causes protests all over the campus, uh, including I think one student who wants to do a hunger strike uh, unless the dean resigns from their position. Uh, and so this is uh, in spite of the fact that the dean seems to have the best of intentions for the student. The dean apologizes, says that she only wanted to help the student, didn't want to uh, diminish her in any way, uh, apologizes for the inartful phrase, if that's even what it was. So on the one hand, you have this hair trigger response to uh, interpret everything in the best possible, the worst possible way. 
And then of course the standards of what counts as the worst possible themselves are irrational. I mean, the way that I would characterize it is that it's, it's driven by a tribalistic approach to politics, what people sometimes call identity politics. And the way that Lukianoff and Haidt analyze this in their book is to say that the, the campus activists divide the entire world between victims and oppressor. Everyone is either good or evil. And so if the student in this case happens to be uh, Latino, she sees herself as the victim. Um, the white administration is the oppressor and there's no, there's no possible middle ground. And this, I mean, there's a lot to say, I think about what's wrong with this whole approach to politics. Uh, the, the very least you can say is that because it divides everybody into these categories uh, based on which group they happen to be a member of, which is something they didn't have any control over, it, it fundamentally ignores the role of, of human free will. And you can see that coming out also in uh, their real disdain for intentions. It doesn't matter if someone didn't intend to be racist. Uh, all that matters is the effect of their action on having caused someone some kind of offense which is, of course, amplified by the fact that they're both in these different unchosen groups. So there's a real problem here with the way these campus activists proceed. Uh, the question, Ankar, in my mind, is uh, how well they are conceptualizing it. And, and you had spoken earlier about how you thought uh, some of the critics um, are better than others in understanding what's, what's going on in this movement. Do you want to say more about that? There's a tribalism here. And if you think of it as tribes, it's very non-ideological. A tribe is defined by these are the members and then they have kids and that's part of the tribe. If you think of tribes in our human history, they're groups of people with a genetic lineage. So, so it's very non-ideological. Just we happen to be these people living in this area and have a group and those people there and they're the bad ones because live somewhere else and have a, some different practices and so on. But it's not only tribal, or let's put it differently. It's not only non-ideological. There's an ideological element here. And I think the better critics understand that, that there's an ideological element here, but it's not honest reasoning. It's not a search for the truth. So there's dogma here not actual ideas. And so I think the best of the critics understand that what you're dealing with is a religious mentality or mentalities. It's not like there's just one group of this. And that's a religion seems ideological, but doesn't offer evidence, arguments, proofs, um, or attempts at proofs for their conclusions, for their dogma. That's what makes it dogma. They accept it without re reason, without evidence, despite the facts, despite what arguments they are and how crazy the ideas be, are and if they contradict actually known things. And so if you're a real religious mentality, you're willing to accept your dogma despite all of that. And I think so. Someone like John McWhorter, who's what, particularly when he's writing about the woke phenomenon, and so the, some of the of, of the now climate, both on university campuses, but it's certainly of course broader than just university campuses now. 
of the discussion of issues about race and slavery. So that that discussion is not actual attempts to really figure out and understand what happened. It's not a quest for the truth. It's they have dogmas. And if you step outside of the lines of the dogma, you're branded as um, you've in in effect, but you don't you you're violating our religion. That's heresy. And you should be thrown out. And so the, the best of the critics, I think, understand. If you look at Western history, we've seen this and like not for like a period of decades, we've seen this for a period of centuries, this kind of mentality that it's supposedly holds ideas, but it's not ideas, it's dogma. And anyone who steps out of bounds is viewed as the other and has to be shunned, ostracized or punished. And then the best of the critics understand that approach has been secularized. So you saw, and they'll bring up like, this is what happened in communist countries. This is what happened in Nazi countries. And it will be in, in communist countries say that it, it's someone at work says something that sounds like that's not part of exactly getting the Marxist dogma right. And they get ratted out and they get, oh, this person should lose their job and be banned from the party. That, and all of it is, it's the semblance of you're dealing with ideas, but what you're dealing with is actual dogma. And that like, there's something profoundly bad about this and particularly if it's emanating from the place that should be dealing with ideas and ideas not as dogma if it really is right and i think it unfortunately is right that it's coming out of the universities this is should be really troubling because the, they're so supposed to be citadels for thinking and reasoning and if what it looks like is there's just places where dogma is spewed out and people are branded as uh, heretics if they don't spew that dogma. That's a profoundly worrying phenomenon. So that that's what the best of some of the critics have to say about this phenomenon. Uh, I want to talk though, and I think the main reason we wanted to do this podcast was to talk about some of the shortcomings in the way they analyze it. And I, I think it goes without saying that for all of these, uh, the reason that we're uh, criticizing them is because it's not good enough. It's not a, it's not a, uh, a serious enough critique to see what's at the root of this really bad problem. And so I want to start with a, a kind of criticism that you see actually coming from that Lukianoff and Hate book that I mentioned earlier, where I got the anecdote from. And uh, I want to say, I think there's a lot of good stuff in this book. And, and both of these uh, authors, I think, have had useful things to say about the phenomenon, what's wrong with it and how to respond to it. But uh, in the book, they, they list a series of what they call great untruths that, are, that they think are at the core of the campus call-out culture is what they're calling it at the time they write the book. Um, and one of them is what they call the untruth of us versus them. The idea that life is a battle between good people and evil people. And the reason that they think that is a problem is because they say it violates what they call uh, the principle of charity. And this is, a, this is an idea that I think they get from philosophy. And it's, a, it's usually advanced as a principle for interpreting uh, text of an author who you don't necessarily agree with uh, as a way of not strawmanning your interpretation of the author. And the, the principle is that one should interpret other people's statements 
and I'm quoting now, one should interpret other people's statements in their best, most reasonable form, not in the worst or most uh, offensive way possible. So for example, to apply back to that example about the, the student versus the dean, they think in this case, the student's failing to live up to this principle because they're not considering uh, other reasons apart from uh, racism or disrespect that might have led the dean to use the phrase "don't fit the mold," um, and indeed, in this case, it seems like there, there, in fact, are many reasons why um, the the dean might have phrased it apart from either of those uh, problematic reasons. So that's part of the reason why I think I mean there's something to this uh, way of analyzing the problem uh, because there are often cases where. You, you need to think about what are the possible motives uh, behind somebody's statement or action. And if you know that there are many possible motives and they're not all bad, then you shouldn't condemn them on the assumption that only one of the possibilities is the actuality. Uh, and there's all kinds of examples you could give of this. Um, easiest case is you know, when, you, when you deal with young people who you know don't know a lot about the world and they say uh, basically stupid things, but you can you forgive them because they probably don't know what they're talking about. So I think there are a lot of young people today who are uh, toying around with uh, ideas about socialism and communism where they just don't know history, they've not been educated. Uh, and if you if you educated them better on, on what these ideas really are and what their history has been, you know, then you could start to blame them for what they're saying, but you give them a pass at least at first I give them the benefit of the doubt because you know there's a lot they don't know. Um, by the same token, if you are a young person and you're trying to judge an older person uh, for something that they say that in that strikes you in an off-color way, well, as a young person, you should also realize you don't know a lot and there are possibilities you might not have considered and, and maybe you shouldn't leap to judgment like that, like that student did with regard to that dean. Um, so there's something to the idea you should you should not always interpret what someone says in the worst possible light. But my problem, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this, Ankar. My problem with that, with using invoking that principle as the as the fundamental issue here, is that uh, charity, whether you're talking about interpretation or in life uh, generally is not an unconditional virtue. Um, sometimes the evidence that you have about a person and their statement or a person and their action uh, should make it clear to you that there are no uh, other possible innocent explanations. That um, sometimes the evidence all points in the direction of uh, this person must have meant something pretty bad or in, when someone does something, they must have been doing it for a bad reason. And you can give all kinds of examples of this. Uh, we'll talk, you, you talked already about John McWhorter and we'll talk about him in a moment soon, but uh, he's, he certainly will acknowledge that there can be some people who, are, uh, who have really hostile uh, racist views. And when you've known them long enough, and you know they're not just kids, and and uh, they've made their position clear, there's not really any reason to suddenly come up with alternate innocent explanations for the things they're doing or saying. Um, or to uh, to to go back to the socialism example. I mean, if you have not a student but a, a college professor who 
pulls out the old saw, real socialism has never been tried, even though the professor knows the history, uh, knows the straightforward definition of socialism as state control of the means of production. Uh, and they at, at that point, they basically have to make up some new uh, definition of socialism to make their claim true. And, and they're like, I don't see a, a plausible reason for thinking the person doesn't know what they're talking about or some innocent explanation. Uh, for their evasion of these historical facts. So uh, as in life generally, charity is only warranted when someone has uh, done something to deserve it, or at least hasn't done anything not to deserve it. And when the evidence uh, suggests that there is no possible innocent explanation, um, charity no longer applies. And you shouldn't try to say, oh, but maybe what they really meant was something um, uh, innocent. And so uh, the the, the real principle here I think that you have to exercise is the principle of justice and justice is concerned with judging people uh, as the evidence accords. And you can't lose sight of that when you're trying to explain what's wrong with quote unquote cancel culture, because the whole problem as, as I think we were outlining from the beginning with that approach is that it is so opposed to justice that it, it leaps to conclusions on the basis of insufficient evidence. And so if justice says judge according to the evidence, then uh, you can't say that you can never judge someone because there's uh, not enough evidence to convict them fully. There might be some undreamt of possibilities. So, uh, Ankar, do you have any further thoughts on yeah, uh, this? Yeah, I think the wider category and which relates it to what we started off with talking about is objectivity. So it's you want to be objective in assessing someone, someone's views, what they're saying, what they're arguing, what they're maintaining, what they're advocating. Often that takes a lot of work to figure that out. I mean, and this is, justice is a application of the issue of objectivity to judging issues about moral values and moral character. But you need that same kind of scrupulous attention to detail. So when you think of, if you're in a, the courtroom and what you're what you want is justice in order to get that you need say the judge or the jury to be proceeding objectively to actually be listening to what's the argument what are the counter arguments against it what facts have actually been brought up if someone's testifying or the reasons to think that his testimony either he can't wasn't there to testify to what he's testifying to or there's something motivating this that is uh, problematic and so on. And that like, you want a judge or jury carefully weighing all of that. And that's what's so shockingly missing in so many of these cancel culture episodes that it's, you don't have any sense that anyone is proceeding in an objective way. And that's part of the, again, to put it as a religious mentality, and put in as a tribal that, that it will be described, I think rightly as people just jumping on the bandwagon of, yeah, they're being attacked and I'll join in on social media and so on. I don't know anything about what happened. I haven't actually looked into anything. Um, I, I don't know the range of facts that I would need to know. And yet I still have a uh, view and a strong view. And that again, that, that's a religious mentality to, to do that. That's part of what it means to have a dogma. And I don't even think of it as there's a principle of charity here. There's something, I mean, you and I were both studied philosophy. I'm sure you came 
your professors brought up at some point this idea of a principle of, of charity and interpretation. And I think of that, it, it's not really charity, it's about it's, it, what it's counseling is objectivity. And this is particularly true when you're reading philosophy and history of philosophy, when you're, I mean, it's more broadly than just history of philosophy, but just take it as history of philosophy. When you're dealing with a very different period and you're reading something, it's easy to view it from the standpoint of today's context and what you know and what other people know and what's taken for granted. So, and it takes real work to, yeah, but if they're writing in the 15th century, this is not, they didn't know what we know now. They didn't have the science we know now. They had different assumptions that were taken for granted and so on. And in interpreting it, that's what you have to do. And I don't think of it as putting it in its best light. I think of it as trying to accurately get what is it that they were actually arguing and reasoning. And, and sometimes you'll think, oh yeah, in that context and so on, this is reasonable. And sometimes you'll think still, no, this isn't, it's not reasonable in the 21st century and it's not reasonable in the 15th century. But that takes real mental work and it's easy to skip that step. And so I think it's right in philosophy classes that they emphasize this, that, look, this is an easy mistake to make, but it's a mistake. And the result is a non-objective conclusion and therefore an unfair conclusion, particularly when you're condemning something. Um, but that's not exactly how they're thinking of it. And it's too much like, look at everything in its best light, even if it doesn't even warrant, like the facts don't warn that. And you have reasons to think, yeah, but the, there's something wrong with this idea and, and the reasoning behind it. And it seems more like rationalization than reasoning. And, so, and it's no, but principle of charity is try to look at it in its best light. But it's, and that there's a tension then between that and what where the actual facts are pointing. And if you're following them, where you'll go, uh, and it, what you should be doing is following the facts, but that that takes work and effort to do that. Um, so the, the, the way, as you put in these great untruths, it's too, it's an oversimplified view. It's true that like the, a tribal mentality jumps easily to, well, that's them and that's bad. And then I'm gonna condemn that. It jumps too quickly to moral judgment. And as the result is that the judgment is non-objective, but the problem's not that they're judging, it's the way that they're judging. And I think some of the other critics are more sensitive to that, that it's not, you have to judge and it, it, it can't be the advice, don't judge. But then the question is, how do you judge? And how do you come to a more rational or objective view of what is going on and what's good and evil here? versus the tribal mentality that's completely non-objective and therefore unjust. So you mentioned that some of the other critics didn't oversimplify things quite as much as Lukianoff and Haidt do. They're not quite as anti-judgment, uh, but we should, we should look at some of these other critics because I think there's, there's still problems that come up with the way they understand when to judge. And in effect, there are still, there's still too much, uh, they're, they're, they're cutting too much slack um, for those who want to escape from the responsibility of judgment. So here, I think we should talk about John McWhorter, who you know, you've, you've already mentioned a few things about. He's, he's one of the more impressive uh, critics of uh, campus culture uh, and this kind of religious mentality that's now infused our whole, our whole culture, uh, usually influenced by the campuses. And um, 
so we've uh, I've been a fan of his for a long time, but I I spotted recently this this article in the New York Times by him because he has a regular column there, which is often very good. And the column was commenting in the wake of or just before I can't remember which the release of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade and yeah, talking before. about the, after the leak and before after the, the leak, right before the, the release of the decision. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's commenting on the issue of abortion and commenting on how basically how should we think about people who are opposed to abortion rights. And he releases this piece called I'm pro-choice, but I don't think pro-lifers are bad people. And in this, I, I want to read just a, a couple paragraphs from this piece, because I think uh, that it, it, it is still, it, it's an example of what I was referring to before of still cutting too much slack for those who don't want to judge. And here's what he says. He says, so often the real issue in these situations is less ignorance or ill will than differing priorities. Take the common idea that to be a Donald Trump supporter is to be, if not a racist, someone who tolerates racism. They uh, rather do not rank Trump's uh, casual bigotry as being uh, as important as others do. To them, this trait is unfortunate and perhaps even off-putting, but not a deal breaker in comparison to other things about him. I see nothing evil in that. It puts me off a bit. It often seems a little too crude, I sense some people being swayed purely by Trump's podium charisma, but that is not the same as malevolence. And so he, he goes then from the, that example of uh, Trump supporters to getting back to the main issue, which is abortion. And he says, or opposition to abortion is often founded on a basic idea that it constitutes the taking of a human life, with many seeing a fetus at even its earliest stages as a person to be that morally forbids us to kill. For them, all the negative effects of doing away with Roe may fade in importance. To them, those things are a lesser priority than preserving life. There, there's the issue of priorities again. I find the scientific aspect of this position a bit unreflective. I also sense in many who take this view less interest in how humans fare in their lives as children and adults than in the fate of uh, humans as fetuses. I have to work to imagine prioritizing a fetus as a person in the way that they do. But I think I manage it and with a deep breath, even though it's not where I stand, I cannot view the equation of abortion and the taking of a life, or even as some suggest a murder as an immoral uh, position. And um, as I said before about the, the Lukianoff and hate perspective, I, I also think there is something right about what he's saying here. There's something to what he's saying um, because yes, clearly people can have honest disagreements about politics and about questions in philosophy. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, might, I might happen to think that Trump is awful and I can still understand why certain people would vote for him thinking that he was the lesser of two evils, you know, compared to Hillary Clinton or, or Joe Biden. Um, and likewise, I, I may think as I do uh, that there should be uh, basically absolute abortion rights. Uh, but I could also see somebody disagreeing with me about that, especially in the later stages of pregnancy, I could see that as, a, as an honest disagreement. So my point here isn't that uh, he's, he's wrong, that you can uh, disagree with someone and not regard them as evil. What I wanna take issue with is the way he again, conceptualizes that issue because the, the, 
and as as you pointed out before, Ankar, the he's not somebody who's totally opposed to moral judgment, and he sees the bigger problems with this campus culture movement. And I think that he does think, even though he'll say, you know, not all uh, Trump supporters are evil, he might he might say that some of them are. But why? Why does he say that the others aren't? Why does he say that uh, most of these people who disagree with him on abortion aren't evil? It's, it's this issue of priorities. He says, it's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're evil. They just have different value priorities. They value the life of the fetus uh, more than the supporters of abortion rights do. But why is it that he's assuming that you can never prioritize things in a dishonest way? Why is he assuming that you can never have completely skewed value uh, hierarchies skewed by your own irrationality, malevolence, ill will? And so, I mean, I assume that this is what he would have to say for someone who's um, a an outright obvious white supremacist type racist, but couldn't it be also that somebody who maybe isn't a racist themselves, but they they tolerate racism uh, among their friends and family, that that could be motivated by something dishonest, by by a fear of disagreement, by a kind of moral cowardice, and and that would be a moral issue, not just a uh, disagreement about questions of fact. Um, and I think again, if you if you think about communism, for instance, people who are you know, that, that college professor that we talked about before, who's, uh, in spite of knowing all the history, in spite of knowing what the definition of socialism is, uh, there, there are all kinds of vicious motives that could explain why he happens to prioritize uh, egalitarian values above the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, motives like envy, hatred of the good for being good. He doesn't like to see that that some people are allowed to pursue happiness in in a free capitalist society, and he wants to he wants to knock them down. And that's why he prioritizes the value of communism more. And yeah, on abortion rights, similar kind of point. Like I can see there being honest disagreement about later term uh, abortions, but if especially if you're talking about earlier term abortions. I think there are a lot of dishonest motives that could lead someone to prioritize the life of the fetus uh, or the embryo in this case ahead of uh, the woman's. And I think um, I think often envy is another example because there's there are people out there who uh, who who basically wish that they had uh, the courage to stand up to sexual the conventional sexual morality, but they didn't, and they hate the people who have the courage to do it. And that's something we could talk uh, endlessly about on a separate topic. But mm -hmm. how do you understand why is it that someone like McWhorter is so, uh, he has this blind spot for considering why certain differences in priority might themselves result from moral flaws, not just um, a blind choice of a different priority? I think you can see the source of the blind spot if you consider a little more of the argument, uh, so you were talking about some of it. Another way that he frames it in this article is um, there's sort of two options. One option is to say, oh, the person's just ignorant of certain facts. And when I tell them about this, about certain things about Trump, um, 
and what he's done, they'll say, oh yeah, okay, then I can't vote for, I didn't realize he had done that. So they're just ignorant. And you, if you enlighten them with certain facts, they change their mind. But he said like, that's not what happens all the time. And the other category is just, they're evil. So it's, it's an evil, I think evil here is important in putting it, it's not just that they're doing something morally wrong, they're evil. And if you think in this category of, sorry, in the context of part of what's being responded to is this kind of tribal religious mentality, that's what happens. The moment you're branded, you're not us, you're them, everything flips. It's okay, so you're evil, you deserve to be ostracized, shunned, we're in a fight with you, it's a combat to the death. That's part of what people are experiencing today that, that we live in a very tribal religious age. The moment someone steps outside of this particular dogma, you're now anathema. And he has a sense of that's not right, but he can't really think of it in, in moral terms. So you are emphasizing that he thinks of it as, well, people just have different priorities. Another way that that's put in philosophy is they have different commitments and um, or a different worldview that they've committed to. And all you can say in the end is, yeah, okay, they're committed to that. So the person who's pro-life has committed to a view that a fetus and from the moment of fertilization of the egg and so that we're dealing with a life to end that as murder. So that's the worldview. That's what they've opted into or committed to. And then from that perspective, uh, abortion's more murder and has to be outlawed. And what can I say about that? I can say they have a different commitment and I can even say something like, I don't really like this commitment, but can I say it's evil? Or putting it a little differently, can I say it's completely irrational? And there, I think it's, well, no, I can't say that. So what is it that can be said? It's, yeah, we just have a, a disagreement here about values and values aren't the province of reason cognition knowledge in the end. So I can't subject them to that test, even though he has a sense that you can. And that's part of what's interesting about the article, and even of what you quoted. No, no, look at this, but then look at the phrasing of it. It's, uh, so he's talking about the, the uh, Trump voters and it's, um, he doesn't see anything evil in that. It puts me off a bit. It often seems a little crude. I sense someone being swayed purely by Trump's podium charisma, but that, that is not the same as malevolence. And I agree that that's not the same as malevolence, but is being swayed only by someone's charisma. And to the point of going to vote for this person as president of the United States, and all you have is, yeah, I like the way he talked, or he has a good stage presence, or something like that. In terms of, is that a rational thing to do? Is that what the a rational pursuit of values looks like? Is this a rational understanding of what's good and what's bad? Yeah, I don't think this person's pure evil. I don't think it's a Nazi. It's a, but there, I do think something's irrational is going on, and I think McWhorter senses that. But we're in the realm of values and reason and cognition don't really apply there. At the end, it's just priorities and a commitment. It's an issue of what someone chooses, not of what they think. And this is a long-standing dichotomy in the intellectual world. 
that facts are on one side and values are on the other. And when we're dealing purely with a value phenomenon, yeah, in the end, what you can say is people make different choices. And maybe for some that are so bizarre, you can say, yeah, like that's a Nazi. Everybody knows that's crazy and evil. But uh, uh, there's a whole realm in which, yeah, that's just what a person chose. I don't like it. But there's nothing to say in terms of, yeah, is that a rational choice? And that, I mean, objectivism challenges that whole framework. But that's part of what's radical about objectivism. It does not make any kind of dichotomy between fact and value. Indeed, what it says is that values are a type of fact, and they certainly are subject to the evaluation of rational versus irrational. It strikes me that all of this is also especially very important for, again, understanding what is wrong with, with uh, many aspects of what they call cancel culture. So many of the criticisms that uh, you hear of it they seem to be much more mm, process focused. Like, well, they don't use the principle of charity enough, or uh, they don't uh, consider uh, how we sometimes differ in priorities. They're unwilling, however, to, th these criticisms are unwilling to just explicitly attack the core values at the heart of these kind of left-wing movements and say something like, Look, the egalitarianism that motivates these campus activists is just a is an evil idea, and uh, it's it's at odds with reality. It assumes that that everybody can have uh, equal abilities or success in life, and that's contrary to reality. and And it's evasive of this movement to pretend otherwise. Uh, and so there's a, if when you but you're I guess you're pushed in that direction if as you're suggesting you don't think that values can be subjected to rational scrutiny but scrutiny but the point here is they can be um and especially when you can see how they themselves represent forms of irrationality which again if the campus culture is a kind of religious mentality it it, it obviously is um so and i think we're going to come back to the issue of ideas like egalitarianism that are just irrational at their core but i wanted to talk uh, about one more of the criticisms that I recently came across of the, uh, the campus culture. And that is from an article by Barry Weiss. Now, Barry Weiss is known as a uh, kind of centrist, uh, uh, liberal centrist commentator. She left her position at the New York Times when she saw the problems with this culture beginning to affect and infect its editorial decisions. And she's since gained quite a following of people who are also critical of this culture. And she's someone who I also think has a lot of good things to say on this issue. But she recently uh, released an article on her Substack, uh, which was a, uh, I guess, a speech that she gave at one of the uh, founding uh, events of the, the new University of Austin, which is sort of positioning itself as the anti-cancel culture new university, um, which again, I also think has some, some good things going for it. But the way that she uh, explains the, how this university and her involvement in it is going to differ. She gives in this article a uh, list of the differences and uh, the article is um, called The New Founders America Needs. She lists a number of principles that it's going to follow that she follows. And one of them that she mentions is uh, the following. She says, 
a politics that forces its adherents to put their most intimate relationships to a litmus test is a politics of totalitarianism. The beauty of America was that it insisted that there are whole realms of human life located outside the province of politics, like friendships, art, music, family, and love. And those are the most important parts of life. And anyone who says otherwise is forgetting what it means to be an American and really a human being. And here again, I wanna say, as I said about the other two critics, there's something right about this, but the element that it's getting right is being pack packaged together with something that's I think, profoundly wrong. So yes, again, you can have honest disagreements uh, with people on questions in politics and philosophy. And when your disagreements are honest, uh, with, that is when you judge the other person's disagreement with you as being honest, uh, there's still obviously a basis for a uh, maintaining a relationship of some kind of friendship. Now, obviously you're going to have to delimit the, the friendship uh, with the disagreement in mind, but there's still ways to be civil and friendly and cordial uh, with people that you disagree with on all kinds of things. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that not all truths are obvious. Um, and so it's not, all, it's not always obvious when someone is saying something false. And that's part of the reason why it can be uh, an honest mistake on their part. But uh, Ankar, I know you wanted to say more about the, the way that the way that Barry Weiss uh, conceptualizes this, especially the way that she kind of draws this dichotomy between the, the realm of politics and then everything else in life, um, is, is that a valid way of splitting up life? Yeah, definitely not. And particularly if you're thinking of it from the point of view of moral values and so moral judgment, it's not like, yeah, okay, politics gets heated because there's moral values and moral disagreements but take one of i mean she lists a number friendship art music but friendships and family it's not like there's not heated disputes about these things and rightly so you can have friendships that are severed because someone does something that's really bad but you can also have friendships severed because there's a misunderstanding and someone interprets that as well okay this guy he would just stab me behind my back that's not actually what happened and what it required for that or for family members you can have family members you judge too harshly you can have family members uh, much more often i think in family it's a little tribal so it's it's they're us uh or we're them so we're not gonna judge yeah if he was an outsider we would say oh yeah this behavior is despicable and so on but if it's an uncle it's, then I won't say that because they're part of the family. And all that is just, that's um, irrational approach to judgment. And it, so that can exist in politics and it can exist and does exist in all these other realms. And the issue is not to say, okay, yeah, well in politics, we debate issues of values, but values don't pertain to these other things or that we all agree about these other things, which that's a fantasy that we all agree on other values, except for values that pertain to politics. And something like the abortion controversy makes that crystal clear that it, the, the disagreement there and the value clashes are much, much deeper than politics. And for all of these, you have to think, what is the rational approach to values here? And so what does it really look like to be pursuing genuine values? in the field of politics, in friendship, in family, in love. 
And what does it look like to not be pursuing that? And as you said, because the issue of values is placed outside of the realm of reason, when they're thinking about rational, irrational, they're just thinking about the process as though you could hold any value, any idea, as long as it, you reached it by a certain process. But there's many ideas that you can't reach by an honest process of thought. And part of the whole issue of values is being concerned not just with the process, but the actual content and thinking about the content and judging the content and does the content correspond to reality or not. And I think for her as against say McWhorter, McWhorter's more on the premise that he's dealing with a religious mentality. And even if he can't fully go there, there's more awareness a religious mentality has wrong values. It's not just that the way they proceed is wrong, though the way they proceed is wrong. It's faith-based, non-logical, not evidence-based. But the consequence is they come to hold a lot of things that are detrimental to human life. Um, take in, in many religions, their whole view of sex is it turns sex from a profound value into something to feel guilty about, it's a sin, and so on. That's enormously destructive because you're removing actual values from human life. He's more aware of that. I think she's more on the axis of, yeah, but religion is innocuous to a good force in the world. And the more you think that, the more you'll want to say, yeah, politics, okay, that's maybe, um, we have heated things, it can get tribal and so on. But these other things, let's put them in another realm. And because you would have to face the issue, maybe there's something like deeply wrong with religion and religion in its process, in its values, in the whole worldview, there's something deeply wrong. And, and you would have to face the question, in the 21st century, can an advocate of religion who's telling other people you should follow this dogma, can you do that honestly? And that's a real question. Yeah, and, and the way that you described the content, not just the process, but the content of those kinds of religious beliefs, especially in relation to something like uh, sexual morality, makes me think, if you think that disagreements about politics, and in, in this case, religion, can't and shouldn't affect personal relationships, I mean, I, I defy someone to explain that on the abortion issue. I defy someone to explain why it should be of no consequence that a couple disagrees about the abortion issue when it's something that could so dramatically affect their relationship. I mean, if, if one person thinks abortion is justifiable and the other one doesn't, uh, I mean, they have to decide whether or not they're going to have sex. And uh, if, if they can't agree about what they're going to do with the possible outcome of that, of that intercourse, what, how can they maintain a, a serious relationship? Um, it's, 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 uh, I mean, I can maybe imagine some workarounds, but it's, it's at the very least very difficult. And uh, that's not trivial for relationships. Um, part of the reason why she's making this point about the division between politics and everything else is because there's a lot of other things in, in the article about uh, how people have their lives ruined, their lives ruined when they get uh, fired from their jobs because of their political positions. And so she's also trying to make the separation 
uh, from work life. In effect, you should be able to have a job regardless of your of your viewpoints. And you know, I think that in many cases, the people who were fired um, because of various cancel mobs were fired unjustly. The main reason being that the cause for firing was unjust, and that the the position that they were holding wasn't actually that that bad. But uh, you can certainly come up with cases where you can think of there would be perfectly good reasons to dismiss someone from their job because of their viewpoints. Like if you're a Hollywood producer and you find out like they did in the 40s that that there are communists who are uh, writing scripts for your movie house, I think you'd be totally, and you don't agree with communism uh, and you don't wanna help spread Soviet propaganda. Like that would be a really good reason to, to fire the person to quote unquote cancel them. Uh, and there, there are, I think, a lot of other examples like that. And um, otherwise, why did Barry Weiss herself think she should leave the New York Times? She didn't want to associate with them because she disagreed with the policies and the practices and the ideas uh, that they were operating on. Um, yeah. So Ankar, we've, we've, we've uh, touched now a few times on the issue of how you can't separate fact from value how you have to judge not just the process that a person reaches, but even the content uh, of certain ideas from a moral perspective, because the way you put it was there are certain ideas that you can't, you can't reach honestly and rationally. And it struck me that this issue really closely relates to a question that has been a sort of perennial topic of debate in the objectivist community. Uh, and that the, the position that we've been taking on this, uh, on, on how it relates to quote unquote cancel culture is, is also um, emblematic of why there have been, why Ayn Rand Institute has uh, disagreed with and split with various other uh, Ayn Rand related organizations uh, prominently, especially uh, David Kelly and his Atlas Society. And uh, I wonder if you would, elaborate more on how you see the same issue at stake in that long-standing controversy. Yes, so part of what we've been talking about is we've been talking about uh, critics of cancel culture, but critics who have good things to say, but who we think don't fully understand this issue and the, and the philosophical issue at root here that uh, values can be judged as rational or irrational, that morality is the province of reason, of cognition, of logic, if you have a proper morality or a correct morality. And this is something Ayn Rand insisted on, but it's something what's, it's really, really radical about objectivism. So I don't find it surprising that in the wider culture, this issue isn't understood or grasped and you see people i think someone like mcwhorter is grappling with it i think he's getting major things wrong but it's he's swimming in the philosophical mainstream i would say objectivism is outside the mainstream here and just as you can see that manifest in the wider culture you can see that manifest in the objectivist movement that i would put the 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 central conflict I and mean, the most well-known and the one that's endured since ARI was created was with David Kelly and what's now the Atlas Society. It's had various names. And I would put it, it was exactly this issue that it's David Kelly was swimming in the mainstream 
of philosophic ideas and presenting it as though it was objectivism. So he had what led to the split was an article, a pamphlet that he published, but published and asked to be circulated. These are pre-internet days, so it wasn't just put up online, but it was uh, openly circulated among people. I was an undergraduate student at the time when that happened. And in which he said, look, the, the primary way you look at ideas is true or false. Actions are good or bad. Ideas are the province of true or false. Putting it, ideas are on the side of facts or on the side of cognition and not subject really to moral evaluation, good, evil. Actions are on the side of you subject to a moral evaluation, good, evil. And the implication was they're not really cognitive. So it was this split, but it's a split that has a long history in uh, philosophical thinking and in Western thinking that facts are on one side and values are on another side or ideas on one side, action. And judging actions, that's a morality. Judging true or false, that's cognition, the search for knowledge and so on. And that's not the objectivist view. Ayn Rand is adamant that this is wrong way to look at things. And part of the consequence of it is you neither really understand ideas. So ideas, um, and you certainly don't understand anything about objectivism because objectivism says the, the locus of control that you have in your life is over your mind and your thinking. So if anything is subject to moral judgment, it's the thinking that you do or don't do and its quality and its honesty and its independence and its objectivity and its rationality. That, if that's not subject to moral judgment, nothing is. And so it's, it's not understanding that whole realm. And then if you divorce action from ideas, then it's, what are you judging exactly? When you judge somebody, you're judging, he did so-and-so because of such-and-such. Such. Like he had these ideas and values and motivations and therefore he did this. And everybody knows like when a murder investigation, you wanna know about the person's motive and ideas to see like, is there, is this action an action that was deliberately taken but deliberately taken means there's something going on in his mind that led him to do this. And so there's no such dichotomy in life or in objectivism, but it is all over philosophy. And what the conflict was that the leaders at ARI, and at that time it was uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff said, like this is nothing, what, nothing close to what objectivism says. And what you're doing is you're making ideas a game that, Okay, it's we, a bunch of academics get together, we debate things. It doesn't really have any consequence. Don't say what we're doing is rational or irrational, good or evil. It's all we're trying is doing is just trying to figure out what's true in effect. And this is the toleration aspect of it. it everybody in the realm of cognition is well-motivated and so on. And they're looking, they maybe made a mistake, but a mistake isn't proof of immorality. And it's not proof necessarily of it, but some mistakes are, and some errors are proof of that you're proceeding non-objectively irrationally. And this really came, like I was 
reminded of this again in dur during the pandemic about that that this their viewpoint and just how radically different a proper understanding of objectivism is in i mean this uh you can say a little bit about this but you had a a doctor writing in about and he he had written a story about objectivists and the pandemic and some objectivist commentary on it and that ayn rand was uh reasonable thoughtful objective when she was talking about infectious disease and the and, and uh things about the power of government in regard to this but he was uh this doctor was complaining that too many objectivists don't seem to uh be engaged in this kind of careful thinking and don't realize the stakes involved like it's important to get this right if you get this wrong people die and i mean literally people die if, if you give bad advice about what government should be doing about how to think about vaccination how to think about covid and the threat for covid if you if you're giving bad irrational advice about this it's a life or death issue and uh, i was surprised in this article that it then went on so it said something about ayn rand and her approach and then that objectivists don't seem to be taking this approach but it singled out the atlas society and david kelly is well he wrote something reasonable early on in the pandemic about this and i thought no what you're complaining about that people aren't taking ideas seriously they're treating it too much as a game is that's exactly their viewpoint um and what was interesting about the whole episode and he wrote a follow-up article because he ended up having um he challenged some of the people at the Atlas Society, uh, including one of their, I forget what he's called, a senior scholar or whatever, uh, Stephen Hicks about like, why is your organization that says it's dedicated to objectivism, to thought, to rationality, why is it giving platforms to people who are putting forth irrational things about the vaccines and the pandemic? And there, there's a, it, it, this took place, this kind of conversation debate took place on Twitter. So there's an exchange about this. Um, yeah, here's part of it. This is sort of the, how it, the exchange ended. And then uh, this doctor wrote up, uh, I wrote a follow-up article about this. And in the follow-up article, he, what he complains about and what he rightly complains about is that it, it, this is what he says in, in the, in the follow-up article. It was what Dr. Hicks said at the end of the conversation that inspired this essay. That is his follow-up essay. Reflecting on the discussion, he said the whole thing was just a, quote, mostly fun Twitter thread on COVID, and that he, quote, mostly enjoyed the wide-ranging discussion today, close quote. And there it is. It was just a game the whole time. Multiple people tried to impress upon Dr. Hicks that this wasn't just a conversation about which superpower is best. So just like an academic conversation that has no consequence. Despite our efforts, um, like all the people I write about, Dr. Hicks never showed any recognition that flesh and blood people, including children, have suffered as a consequence of anti-vaccine disinformation. And so it was like, 
why do you think it's, so part of the argument was, why do you think it's right to give people a platform for this? And the response in effect was, oh, but we're just discussing and debating ideas and every idea is debatable. All that you can say about ideas is, are they true or false? And when to figure that out, you need to debate everything and so on. This isn't the province for good and evil. It's not the province for values. Why are you bringing in values into it? And um, this doctor was rightly upset, I think, in this response, and that there's something that there's something really wrong going on at the Atlas Society. What he doesn't understand is this is their mission. Their mission is, um, look, we are the ones who uh, understand objectivism because we understand that ideas and actions or fact and value are severed. And this is what it looks like when you sever this. It's just some academic debate about, yeah, is the, this position about vaccines, is it irrational or not? No, it's just, is it true or false? That's all you do when you're debating ideas and don't bring in values to this. That's in another realm. Um, yeah, maybe that's subject to moral evaluation, but that's just a different thing. And a doctor on the front lines knows that if in thinking about this, when it's there's no separation between are you pursuing the truth and are you pursuing values? Or are you not concerned with the truth and therefore not concerned with the values? And if you're not concerned with values, that puts you on the side of being anti-values. That puts you on the side not of being good, of being bad. And it, it, so this is a it's a deep issue. It plagues our culture and it plagues the objectivist movement as well. And for the same reason that it's the mainstream view is that fact and value are sundered. And the objectivist view, but it's a radical view, is that that whole approach is fundamentally wrong and therefore fundamentally destructive. Yeah, I thought I should also just add uh, some of my own perspective on the issue of uh, the ARI's relationship with the Atlas Society and with Kelly. When you mentioned you were an undergrad when the controversy was originally breaking out, uh, when I was an undergrad, I was I was I it was in the mid '90s, and it had been a few years since the controversy happened. Um, but I uh, quickly found a lot of material on the internet at the time. There was not a lot of information on the internet about objectivism, and half of it that was there was about this controversy. So I I, I read it very eagerly, and um, at the time I. I actually, uh, something about the, the Kelly perspective appealed to me because I thought, well, he's, he's, very, he's very academic and he went to Princeton and he's, he wants to engage in debate with scholars and I was uh, academic, of, uh, going to become an academic myself. So I was sympathetic a little bit to going, going into examining that controversy. Uh, but very quickly, even though I think at the time, much more of the content about the controversy was written from the pro-Kelly side. I very quickly realized, well, whatever you say about uh, this approach, it's not Ayn Rand's. Uh, I had just read Atlas Shrugged and uh, was, uh, it, it was very clear to me that she thought that um, questions about moral sanction were very important. And it was clear to me that she made uh, judgments, moral judgments about ideas. And I just didn't understand where this this kind of toleration about disagreement uh, on even really core philosophical issues was coming from in his view. And 
reflecting a bit on the history of how that transpired is, is also interesting because you know, it started out initially ostensibly as a disagreement about uh, what's the difference between objectivism and libertarianism and what kind of relationship should objectivists have with libertarians. But the way that it's progressed over the last few decades has been a gradual, not just uh, let's get in bed with lots of different libertarian organizations, but let's start reaching out and uh, to and, and even pandering to uh, religious conservatives. Um, you have this Wall Street Journal article by Jennifer Grossman appearing, uh, saying you can love God and Ayn Rand. I mean, if that's not a if, if that's not a failure to be serious about ideas uh, from an objectivist perspective, I don't know what it is. Uh, and then, especially recently, uh, on the abortion controversy, where uh, this is something that Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand had definite views about. She was she thought it was a crucial issue. Uh, she herself refused to vote for conservatives because of the stance that they took on abortion. And even though it's you know probably the biggest issue in the news today because of the the court's decision, and also a very philosophical issue that objectivism has a lot to say about. Atlas societies had very little to say about it. Their commentary has been minimal, and uh, I think it's it's clearly because they they don't want to uh, they don't want to judge the the people in their audience who they know are sympathetic to the religious conservative view on this issue. So, and it's, yeah, it's part of not taking ideas seriously. So the, if you're taking ideas seriously, you're, you view people who reach the truth and especially like new fundamental truths as they're the exemplars of morality. This is what it means to be dedicated to reality, to search for the truth and then to act on the truth. And this is part of why there's no severing of these two. If you don't think of ideas as these are gonna guide me, um, you're not really thinking about ideas. That's what it means that they're a game. And this was ARI and, and particularly Dr. Peacock, he predicted this was what's going to happen. If this is your view, then there's no idea that's out of bounds. You might say it's wrong, false, but the idea and the people who originated, advocated, um, uh, or form organizations that are active around it, they're just mistaken. And so you will tolerate everything. And what you saw with them is a growing toleration of everything. And it starts off with um, sort of various dis disaffected objectivists. Then it became the real enemies of Ayn Rand, like the Brandons. Oh yeah, we'll take them and we've got nothing. To, yeah, maybe they're mistaken about certain things, but we're just ideas. What's the, what's the, why making a big deal of it? Why I think this is a moral issue, an issue about values and so on. We're in the realm of ideas. And then you got to, we're at the point now, as you said, like toleration of uh, religious people. And that's part of the, as you said, the abortion thing. It's like, really, can we say religion is uh, evil? And the advocate, like a serious advocate of it today, um, maybe they're mistaken, but what else? or things about like spreading uh, um, irrational things about vaccines and so on. Again, it's well, maybe it's mistaken, but wh 
why make an issue of values about this? And it is, you will, like the logic of the position is you will tolerate anything and everything as long as someone says, oh, this is just a disagreement about ideas. And that is like, that has nothing to do with subjectivism. And it's part of why ARI as an institution has said, look, this is, this is a fraud. This is, this is an organization that says it's upholding of objectivism, but what it's doing has no relationship to objectivism. And therefore we can't deal with them at all. Like we have, we, it's a fraud and we keep our distance as we would from a business fraud. All right, well, I think uh, we've, we've spent enough time on that topic. We should start to wrap up. Uh, I'll remind everyone in the audience that we're going to be discussing this on Clubhouse right after the show. So please uh, download the Clubhouse app, look up the Ayn Rand Club, and we will proceed uh, to answer more of your questions. We didn't get a chance to really answer any that came in today because there was a lot to talk about, um, but I think we can talk about these in Clubhouse. Uh, also would like to share with you some resources that you may want to look into if you want to learn more about what we discussed today, especially on the uh, the last issue, uh, the the issue with Iron uh, Institute versus David Kelly. Obvious and best place to look for more information on this is Leonard Peikoff's essay, Fact and Value, which argues for why uh, fact and value cannot be separated in the way that some of these critics of cancel culture uh, suggests they can, but also I think in the way that, that Kelly did. Uh, we've also done a couple of previous, oh yeah. Yeah, I just wanna say a word. So that essay is of interest regardless of whether you're interested in the particular controversy between the ARI and the Atlas Society, this, it, it, and it's deliberately written like this, like what does objectivism actually say about the relationship between fact and value? And then there's some application to the, the conflict with David Kelly, but the essay's worth reading, regardless of whether you're interested in that um, conflict, because it helps you think in a much more deep way about uh, how objectivism thinks about fact and value. And as a secondary thing, why objectivism is right to think about fact and value in that way. Well said. Uh, we also have a couple of previous podcast episodes we've done on the topic of uh, so-called cancel culture, uh, where we've uh, talked about, again, what is wrong with the culture on campuses, but why conceptualizing it as cancel culture is not the best way to think of it, why uh, sometimes it is necessary to disassociate with people that you disagree with for moral reasons. Uh, one was an episode I did with Elon Journo a couple of years ago, I think now, uh, The Fuel on the Fire of Cancel Culture, and another uh, that you did, Ankar, with Mike Mazza, Challenging Cancel Culture. You can look those both up on ARI's YouTube channel. Also want to share with you some news and announcement about next week's topic on New Ideal Live. Tune in here same time as usual on Wednesday. We'll be talking about the sorry legacy of tolerance for Iran's Islamist threat, a topic that has uh, sadly come into the news again in a number of ways in the last few weeks. This will be a discussion with uh, Ankar here, uh, also Augustina Vergara-Sid and uh, Nikos Sitiva-Kouplis. That's next Wednesday, August 17th. Uh, also, I'd like to remind you to uh, send us, uh, if you enjoyed this, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please follow our channel 
on YouTube and uh, click the subscribe button, click the bell uh, to get notifications when we go live. If you're watching recording, please leave a comment, uh, share, like, that helps optimize the algorithm so more people will know about this channel. Same story if you're watching on Facebook, uh, please share and like. And last of all, uh, if you have questions about things that came up today, if you'd like to suggest new topics of conversation that we might pursue in future episodes, send us an email at newideal@einrand.org. We try to answer many of these and we read all of them. Uh, and some of the questions that you send us, we will also sometimes save for future Q&A episodes, even if they're not uh, the basis for a whole episode. So please send those to us. And especially if you think it would be good to discuss on the show, flag that. Um, otherwise, I think uh, that's everything we want to talk about on the podcast day. We'll be moving to Clubhouse soon. Uh, thanks very much for having a conversation with me, Encore, on this topic today. I think it um, connects a kind of perennial issue and objectivism to uh, facts on the ground in, in current events today. Yeah, thanks, man. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.